If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. I'm sure that many of you will have watched yesterday's Cricket World Cup final. And on today's podcast, we've got the extraordinary story of the first Indian cricket team to tour Great Britain. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, headed to Leicester to speak to the historian Prashant Kidambi, whose new book, Cricket Country, tells the story of the 1911 All India Tour. To kick off, Prashant, in, in the preface to your book, you cite the quote... Cricket is an Indian game accidentally invented by the English. I mean, is that a view you subscribe to personally? Uh, well, it's, it's a view that uh, has some difficulties with it in that it seeks to overturn one uh, myth with, with another. I mean, the idea that, you, you know, cricket is a purely English game, that was very much central to the myths that English cricket told about itself. But of course, right from its beginning, cricket becomes a very global game. Um, and uh, and there were many different uh, sort of elements that went into the making of English cricket. This view that cricket is an Indian game accidentally discovered by the uh, English is actually something that has become 
um, very congenial to Indians because now they've come to appropriate cricket as an Indian game. Sure. And it has come with its own myths somehow that, you know, cricket is somehow uh, a game that reflects Indian society, that, you know, its hierarchical nature or the slow nature of cricket uh, all chimes with, uh, with what Indian society is. And I think there are a whole set of myths that have crept up uh, or have come to be associated with this view, which the book actually challenges. So I, I would say... I'm very ambivalent about the formulation. Just rewinding, how was the game of cricket first introduced to India? It came with the English. Um, the first recorded game is supposed to be in the Gulf of Kambat or Gulf Kambay, as it was known in 1721. Um, it really takes off in the early 19th century um, and is played largely in the colonial enclaves, the British settlements, um, mostly the port towns. Um, Calcutta, uh, Madras, but Bombay above all. And it's really in Bombay that it, it establishes itself as a very important part of British social life. Um, and of course, it's in Bombay too that Indians begin to take it up in a big way. So cricket really comes with the British um, and it's played by initially by men of arms as it were, uh, sailors and soldiers. Then increasingly as the British presence increases, after 1857, it comes to be played by more diverse groups who've settled, who've come to India, uh, uh, you know, as part of the imperial encounter. So you're, but at the moment, you're talking mainly about British people playing the sport rather than Indians. Well, so so at the outset, till the about the 1830s and 1840s, it's largely played by the British. Right. It only begins to be taken up by Indians sometime around the late 1830s, 1840s. And more, you know, sort of after the 1850s that it really kind of uh, takes off and uh, Indians begin to play it. And it's largely played by Indians living in the cities that were established by the British. So Calcutta, Bombay, Madras. But Bombay is the one that really takes the lead. Um, was it adopted by sort of all communities and all religions originally or was it restricted more to the sort of the ruling classes? It's a very interesting story. The first uh, Indians to take it up uh, were the Parsis. Uh, the Parsis, of course, a very small community uh, who had settled in Western India. Uh, they'd, they'd migrated from what was then known as Persia, which, you know, modern-day Iran. Um, and they'd come and settled in Western India, originally along the coastal, uh, sort of in the coastal areas, but then moved to Bombay, uh, the coastal areas of Gujarat, I should say. And then they moved to Bombay yeah. uh, and became uh, sort of resident, in, they became the residents of Bombay in, uh, they were largely concentrated in Bombay. And they uh, are very closely associated with the British in terms of trade. Um, and, and then there are Parsi uh, businessmen who make huge fortunes, the China trade, as it were, yeah. uh, working with uh, British partners. And of course, that then um, also fuels their own um, sort of self-representations as a very anglicized British community. Uh, and and it's as part of that, as I show, that they take up cricket too. And, sure. and cricket becomes one of the ways in which they signify and uh, communicate their Britishness as well. Right. And when did it start sort of spreading into other communities? Um, that The first Hindu cricket club is supposed to have been formed in 1866. Again, all right, of this is really happening in Bombay. Yeah. Uh, we have much less information for what's going on elsewhere. Uh, Bombay uh, has been seen and 
uh, in large measure, this is true. Uh, this is where most of the Indian communities who took up the game were originally concentrated. So the Parsis, as I said, took it up in the from the late 1830s onwards. The first Hindu club is supposed to have come uh, come up in 1866. Um, it's really in about from about the 1870s that you start uh, cricket spreading amongst other communities and. It's by the end of the 19th century, it's being played by the Hindus, it's being played by the Muslims, and of course, other communities too. And um, what did the, the British make of Indians playing cricket? I mean, were they receptive to that idea? So, in the book, I show how the British attitude to Indians taking up cricket is very ambivalent. Right. Uh, initially, when they see the uh, 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 Parsis take up cricket, uh, they're both amused, but also slightly um, dismissive. And as the Parsis begin to get better at the game, that turns increasingly into a certain kind of hostility. So ambivalence turns into hostility. Uh, and I document how um, in the late 19th century, there were many disparaging uh, racist remarks directed at the Parsis, who incidentally in other areas of life are regarded as close collaborators of the British. But in the cricket field, what you see are uh, growing tensions as the Parsis start getting better at the game, uh, the English uh, start increasingly uh, looking at this with hostility because it seems to uh, call into question their own narratives about how Europeans are superior to Indians physically and, and you know, losing on the sporting field right, okay. calls into question those ideas of European yeah. racial dominance. Okay. Um, why do you think Indians embrace cricket so enthusiastically um, you know, in, in these early days? The argument in my book is that we need to think about this question differently from how it's been thought before. And you, there are two kinds of ways of thinking about it. One is that the, we should see cricket as a success of the British civilizing mission. This was a story told by the imperial elites, as it were, that cricket was the way by which they civilized Indian society. It becomes a tool in the civilizing mission. As opposed to that, there's another viewpoint which has been, become more fashionable in recent years, which is cricket is a site of resistance. You know, cricket is where Indians express their resistance to the Raj. My view is that actually we should think about this question differently. We should think about cricket as a sort of cultural resource, which is used by different sections of Indian society for different ends. The Parsis use it to demonstrate their Britishness, to demonstrate their uh, taking up of British norms, values, uh, and uh, practices. Uh, the Indian princes, the princely states, when they start playing cricket towards the end of the 19th century, use it as a way of uh, acquiring prestige and re recognition in the eyes of the British establishment. Playing cricket is seen as a way of being uh, as an entry point into the British imperial establishment. Uh, the Dalit cricketers I talk about, for them, cricket becomes a site of justice, uh, the, these, uh, the quest for social um, uh, justice and 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 a, uh, a, a rebuttal, as it were, of the discrimination that they have to confront. Could you just explain who the Dalits were? So the Dalits were basically what were known as the. Uh, they were the most uh, dig, uh, sort of discriminated against community within Hindu society. So the Dalits, uh, you know, it it is really an existent existence marked by degradation, humiliation, and and. Um, and of course, economic exploitation. Sure. So, to have cricketers in this team that I talk about, you know, who are coming from the Dalit communities, is quite remarkable. Now, for the Dalit, for the the, uh, the two Dalit players in this team, cricket is a uh, is a is a way by which they not only uh, you know showcase their own extraordinary abilities, but also a means by which they seek to achieve social recognition and 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 question the inequities of the caste system. 
Um, so basically, my argument, and for the Muslims, uh, you know, when they take up cricket, it becomes also a way by which they can rethink their relationship both with the British imperial establishment, but also fashion a new kind of identity in the colonial context where you can try and you know, where you try and reconcile Western learning with Islamic teaching. You know, so so my argument is that rather than thinking of cricket as a sort of binary, you know, it's either the civilizing mission or an act of resistance, you see cricket actually as a cultural resource which enters Indian society and acquires different kinds of meanings. Different groups see in the game uh, different opportunities and different possibilities. Okay, so your book, Cricket Country, tells the story of the first cricket team to represent India in Britain, which happened in 1911. But am I right in saying that this wouldn't have been... Um, the first time that the people of Britain would have been exposed to Indian cricketers? Because wasn't there some superstar Indian cricketers who played in Britain before that? Yes, you're absolutely right. The first uh, and the greatest of them really is uh, Prince Ranjit Sinji, or Ranji as he was known. Ranji comes over to England in the late 1880s. By 1891, he's playing for Cambridge. And in the years uh, uh, in the mid-1890s, he quickly becomes the most celebrated English cricketer, the most celebrated English cricketer after W.G. Grace. Sure, yeah. So you had W.G. Grace and then there was this Indian prince. Wow, right. And Ranji was regarded as, you know, through this lens of oriental uh, orientalism. He was seen he's as an oriental... Exotic, yeah, he was exotic. Yeah. He was this magician who, you know, somebody said he never played a Christian stroke in his life, you know, that sort of right, thing. Okay. He was seen as something magical, but also something... You know, these are the benefits of having a vast empire, that you would have these sorts of exotic uh, characters turn up. And Ranji was seen as exotic. He was seen as, uh, uh, you know, somebody who had, you know, who, who played more like a magician than he did like, a, you know, like a normal cricketer. And am I right in saying he represented England? He, he represented England and that becomes the focus of a great deal of angst within the English cricketing establishment. There were some, like Lord Harris, who had once been the governor of Bombay, a key figure in the MCC, the Middlebourne Cricket Club at Lord's, who believed that Ranji was a bird of passage, that he was an Indian, he could not play for England. He himself, Harris himself, had been born in Trinidad, in, in the West Indies. Uh, you know, that never sort of came in the way of himself, you know, he, yeah. of, of his regarding himself as an English cricketer. But he, he had great misgivings about Ranji playing for uh, England. But selection in those days was not centralised. So the Lancashire Cricket County Cricket Club, the match at Old Trafford in 1896 against Australians, they included Ranji in the team. He scores a big century, becomes a hero. And over the next three years has this astonishing uh, success on the cricket field. He's, he's, he's an icon, you know, and, and known uh, across the empire. How did he change English or Britain's perceptions of India? So the, the the key way in which he changes it, from my perspective, uh, is that he calls into question the settled idea that cricket is a, essentially an English, essentially an Anglo-Saxon game. Uh, so you had this Indian prince who creates these extraordinary strokes, who's hugely successful on the cricket field, scores tons of runs. How do you explain it? So the, the way they explained it was by saying, well, he's not normal. He's he's a magician. He's, he's magical. He's an oriental. He's oriental. You know, he... For all you know, Ranji could have, in this view, for all you knew, Ranji could equally have been a snake charmer or, a, or, 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 or you know, could perform rope frips or whatever. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. 
at its heart, there is somehow the idea that the cricket team embodies the idea of India, you know, that it reflects the diversity of India. You have players coming from different regions, different religions, different backgrounds, coming together as a team. Cricket is seen as a unifying force, a unifying symbol. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Okay, so if we get on to the, the tour of 1911, the one that your book is essentially based on, mm. how did the tour come about? I mean, who were the prime movers and, and what were their motivations? There's growing political violence in India targeting British officials. Because by this time, a growing number of Indian youths had started getting very um, disillusioned with the moderate politics of the Congress. They wanted to, they felt that the only way the British could be um, made to listen uh, would to make to take note of Indian nationalist aspirations would be through violence, through the bomb, as it were. So between 1907 and 1909, you have growing instances of revolu- what they called revolutionary violence. You so know. This is a great word, a surge in nationalism. Uh, yeah, but, but yeah. A, a surge in a radical time. kind of sure. nationalism, eschewing the, you know, the politics of the Congress, which was seen as moderate, yeah. too mendicant, too base, you know, too focused on simply petitioning and praying the British to ca- you know, cast an eye over their grievances. Now the idea was the British can only be chucked out of India by using force, and and so the bomb and the gun become the the uh, the favored tools of resistance. So between 1907 and 1909, the the political climate in India goes grows quite dark um, because of course these attempts to assassinate British officials and throw bombs at them and so on is met with growing repression. So it's in this context that you have 
a bid to send an Indian cricket team again, but yeah. this and, and to establish and show to the British that India would be a loyal part of the British Empire. So it's being championed by the moderate elements, those who see themselves as British Indians, who want to emphasize the loyalty of India to the British Empire. Because the reason they are worried is that the most spectacular instance of violence happens not in India, it happens in London. You have the secretary, uh, one of the um, uh, sort of people who's working at the India office, uh, for you know, uh, which is headed by the Secretary of State for India, a man named uh, William uh, uh, Curzon Wiley uh, is assassinated. Uh, and he had, of course, been an old India hand. He's assassinated by a young Indian uh, Punjabi named Madan Lal Dhingra, who, uh, of course, is then executed uh, at London's Pentonville Prison for right. having carried out this... Uh, so tensions are high. Yeah, so this is in July 1909. Yeah. And in the British conservative press, there's a growing demand that we have to start thinking about having... Uh, Indians come freely into the country. Madanlal Dhingra was a student at uh, the uh, UCL, University right. College London. Yeah. Uh, and the idea is that, look, it's clear that the civilizing mission is not working. Uh, can we really afford to have these dangerous Indians coming, Indian students coming to India, uh, to England, and then becoming terrorists, becoming assassins? So maybe the time has come to prevent the unrestricted entry of Indians who are using their status as British subjects to come to the metropolis. Uh, to perhaps put a stop to that. So the tour is an expression of loyalty yes. to, to the imperial project? Yes. Right, okay. So the tour is... The, as far as the promoters are concerned, yeah. because what the book also shows is once you start a project like this, the, the meanings that attach themselves to it cannot simply be subsumed under loyalism, because there are, there are of course, many Indians who will see this as an opportunity also to show the British that they can play the game, that, that it is about as much about recognition as it is about loyalism. So it's about the quest for uh, many Indians to show that they had the physical capabilities to be the equal of, uh, of, of Europeans. This is not so much resistance as some historians see it, it's actually recognition. But for those who are minded, who see themselves as British Indians, the idea being that you can be a patriotic Indian but be part of the British Empire. For those who had that sort of idea of India being part of the empire, these acts of violence were beginning to call into question uh, the uh, imperial uh, sort of uh, connection. They were very worried that you know Britain would increasingly become ill-disposed towards India. So th the aim of the tour is actually as an act of bringing together Britain and India through, uh, through cricket. And so you've got there's a few colourful characters, I know, come on this tour of their own personal motivations for doing so. I mean, wonder if you could talk, talk me through one or two of those. Well, the answer to this question, you're absolutely right. And actually, the reason I started this project uh, was because of these characters. Uh, because I didn't know this backstory, you see. I only saw the characters first. And I was drawn to these characters because the captain is a 19-year-old portly prince, a Sikh prince. Um, the star player is a Dalit who, as I explained, comes from one most uh, communities that are most discriminated against by upper caste Hindus. The team itself had Parsis, Muslims, and Hindus, all, and the team was chosen on sectarian lines. So I was very drawn to this idea of how did this motley collection of men come together? 
it was only during the course of the research that all these, the, the wider history, the larger, longer story, which is what the first part of the book really does. It, 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 it looks at the history of how this happened. And, and then you start recognizing, you know, you start discovering through, through the research, I discovered all these failed attempts, the, the political context, etc. But coming back to these characters, it is really extraordinary. So Bhupinder Singh, Maharaja Bhupinder Singh, the, uh, the ruler of Patiala, has just been made ruler a few uh, a year before the tour. And that decision itself was taken after a great deal of hand-wringing and a great deal of um, discussion and debate within the imperial establishment. Like his father, who had died very young, but was widely acknowledged or widely uh, criticized for being debauched in that he spent all his time drinking and, and uh, with women and so on. Though he was also recognized as a very good sportsman and he did much for sport, uh, especially cricket in the late 1890s. Um, so it was widely assumed that Bhupinder Singh was going the way of his father because at the time that he was, you know, he, he becomes ruler as soon as he turns 18. Uh, before that, of course, there's a council of regency that runs the state and so on. Uh, there are all sorts of rumors about his sexual escapades, the fact that he's surrounding himself with the wrong company and so on. He's made uh, the ruler of Patiala. He's given his formal ruling powers after a great deal of debate, as I said. And Bhupinder sees the tour as a way of rehabilitating himself in the eyes of the imperial establishment, but also using it as a resource to develop direct links with the imperial establishment in London because he's been giving them a very hard time by the local British officials in Patiala right, and right. in the Punjab. So it, for him, it becomes a way of actually, if you develop a link with the uh, the, those who are in the higher up the uh, food chain, as it were, then that becomes a resource with which you can handle your local tormentors. So Bhupinder comes to Britain very much to use the tour as a way of connecting. And it's, of course, the year of the coronation. He knows, you know, and there are going to be all these princes. They're going to be, you know, it's going to be a huge global event. He wants to use it to develop links with the British imperial establishment, directly with the king emperor, in fact, the new king emperor, George V. And he sees this tour as a means of, uh, as a political tour, really, rather than a cricketing tour. As it happens, he only plays three cricket matches. He disappears. He spends all his time hopnobbing with the imperial establishment. He plays polo. He goes to the polo clubs uh, because these are the places where the imperial elite uh, gather. Yeah. Uh, he spends all his time cultivating his ties with the imperial establishment. Cricket he is, is a subsidiary thing as far as after the third match, he's off. Because the team loses its first 11 yeah, matches. I was going to ask you, how, how did they fare on the pitch? Yeah, so the last part on, of the book the, really the is talking about how the Indian team fares on the pitch. And they do very badly to start with. How long is the tour, sorry? So they come over, they reach uh, Britain on the 21st of May. Right. And they're here right until the last day of August. They leave on the 1st of September. So... So it's time. yeah. So yeah. and they and it's not like tours these days. These people travel to every part of the country. They're not given test match status, of course. So they yeah. play county teams. So what I show in the book is how they're incorporated into one of the most extraordinary summers in the history of English county cricket, because they go around playing. They're really like a brown county team, a, right. a peripatetic county team, if you will. And essentially, what happens is they lose. They, so. They're, they're pitted against all the first-class, strong county teams first. And the idea behind this, as far as the British imperial promoters were concerned, was that this is an exercise in teaching them how to play. So they have to be tested. So they put them, you know, it's a, it's a relentless schedule where they're playing matches, two matches a week. 
So you play a match three days, then you take the journey, and and the journeys were not logically arranged. So you'd sure. be going up and down across the country. To get, they go to Wales, they go to Scotland, they go to Ireland, they play in England, of course, and they do very badly against the established county teams. They lose the first eleven matches. It's only slowly the twelfth match that they play against Leicestershire where the tide turns. Leicestershire is a bit like the Indian cricket team that year. They've lost all their matches in the county season. So you have two teams which meet here in July. In fact, exactly, you know... Where sat livers. <laughs> yeah, almost 180 days yeah. to the day, as it were. Um, and the Indians beat Leicestershire. And that's when they start... Their tour sort of turns around to an extent. They start beating uh, some of the other county teams, some of the weaker county teams. And then, of course, once they start playing the second-class teams, because these are all first-class teams, once sure. they start playing the second-class teams, they 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 start doing much better. And um, of course, on the whole, they lose more matches than they win. But they don't. By the end of the tour, they've shown enough flair, enough uh, skill for you know them to be treated with more respect than they were when the tour started. They were greeted, of course, with great cordiality by the imperial establishment, for whom they were a symbol of. Again, you know, this is look, our civilizing mission has succeeded. So, you know, uh, they were also the old India hands, the people who had left India, who served in India, come back, who came out. So, ha Lord Harris, who plays for Kent, comes out and leads the Kent team against them. Uh, Lord Hawk leads the Yorkshire team against them, though York, uh, York Hawk hadn't been in India. Uh, and you also have. Anglo, you know, Anglo Indians, as they were called, that is the British who had lived in India, who had come back to, uh, to Britain to settle down, who took great interest in the doings of the team. Um, so as far as the attendances are concerned, the numbers were not sort of humongous, but the social reception was very cordial. They were, they were greeted with a great degree of uh, warmth wherever they went. And can, can you just briefly tell me a little bit about the political landscape in Britain in 1911 and Britain's attitude to India and its empire at, at this point. Yeah. Uh, so this is one of the most fascinating things uh, when I was researching the book, because I had expected, you know, I had read so much about the golden age of cricket and, you know, um, the Edwardian age, you know, the apogee of the British empire. It's really sort of seen from the, uh, you know, from a, 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 through a lens of nostalgia, isn't it? Especially the, yeah. the the chasm of the First World War, that you see it as this golden period before the First World War, when when things were so settled, um, sort of Britain was uh, the top nation in the world, uh, everything was in its place. Um, now, to an extent, that was true. It was an extraordinarily glorious summer, one of the hottest summers. In fact, there were points when the summer became positively uncomfortable because it was one of the hottest summers since the 17th century. Right. Uh, but there were also glorious days in which the sun came out and British high society was in its element. The season was in its full splendor. And yet, at the same time, you could already see the intimations of trouble and intimations of political unrest. Uh, this was, of course, the period that, you know, uh, George Dangerfield very famously said was, you know, the strange death of liberal England. This was, of course, it comes bang in the middle of that. And it was a period when you had this uh, extraordinary crisis in the House of Lords, uh, you know, with the liberal government uh, threatening to create 500 new peers to get their legislation through. Uh, and this being sort of resisted by the conservative uh, aristocratic um, sort of uh, politicians in the House of Lords. Um, it was also a summer of extraordinary uh, labor unrest, uh, unrest in the docks, unrest in, in, in other sectors of British industry, uh, transport strikes. Um, you, 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 at, at one point, there are sort of 
clashes uh, between troops and and uh, you, you know workers on the streets. Liverpool, you know, sees some of the worst clashes. Uh, in fact, there's a very end, um, sort of vivid image in my book of how, um, y- you know, at one point the uh, local councillors in Liverpool are, are begging Churchill to sort of send his send the troops in, and you have a ship that is uh, lined up outside the Merseyside with its guns trained on Liverpool. You know, right. so there's there's almost a sense that some kind of social revolution is happening. So it was a time of extraordinary uh, unrest. Of course, you also had towards the end of the summer the firing in South Wales. Uh, Lanelli, which you know, um, so which which creates huge unrest as well. So the Indians are traveling across the British Isles when the country is going up with flame. Sure. So in two respects, it was the most extraordinary of summers because when I started off, I had this image of these cowering Indians going uh, to Britain. It's going to be cold, uh, you know, unfamiliar setting, um, and and it's going to be you know the sort of uh, a very stable society with imperial grandeur. Now there is, of course, some of that because this was the summer of the coronation, and 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 you had a lot of imperial splendor. But you also have this other image of of a country which is you know suffering from a heat wave, uh, and the Indians actually really struggle with the heat. In one match, right. the Indians, two of the Indian players, have to be rested because they are not able to cope with the heat. Um, it's also summer of uh, extraordinary political unrest. Um, you know, of the kind that the Indians would have much more likely expected back home. You know. Yeah. Um, so a society seemingly um, uh, up in arms, as it were, um, and and the Indians making their way across the British Isles. So I think it makes for a sort of strange, you know, the setting is quite extraordinary for the tour. Okay, you, you write in your book that, that this is a tale of how the idea of India took shape on the pitch long before the country gained its independence. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think... Uh, uh, the uh, one way of thinking about this question is to think of the contemporary discourse around Indian cricket and especially the Indian cricket team, Team India, as it's popularly known. And in recent years, you've seen a very shrill hyper-nationalism around cricket. Uh, even this World Cup, we've, we've had our share of controversies. Uh, the Indian uh, wicketkeeper, MS Dhoni, was uh, uh, created a furore when he stepped out onto the field in one of the matches wearing uh, wicket-keeping gloves which had the insignia of, uh, you know, a military insignia as it were. Uh, You had uh, the tensions between India and Pakistan before the World Cup which even meant that some Indians before the World Cup started were calling for a boycott of the match against Pakistan. Uh, You've had other kinds of uh, sort of uh, uh, ways in which cricket, I mean, the fact that the Indians stepped out onto the match against England wearing orange Jerseys that was seen as a sort of growing saffronization of the game, so uh, of the cricket team. So uh, at its heart, there is somehow the idea that the cricket team embodies the idea of India. You know that it reflects the diversity of India. You have players coming from different regions, different religions, different backgrounds coming together as a team. That it is in a society that is divided along many different lines, caste, religion, class, etc. Cricket is seen as a unifying force, a unifying symbol, almost a natural expression of the idea of India. And what this book shows is that, first of all, that idea was neither natural nor inevitable because the first Indian cricket team was formed 36 years before India became independent. And that team itself didn't emerge uh, organically or automatically. It took 12 years, three failed attempts before this idea takes shape on the cricket pitch. So it was to show how contingent and historically um, rooted the notion of India on the cricket pitches. And of course, that cricket and the nation can be linked 
or the relationship can be expressed in different ways. Today, you see the cricket team as almost soldiers on the cricket field. You know, I mean, many of the Indian cricketers themselves have come to talk in that language. You know, soldiers on the cricket field. Uh, you know, war minus the shooting, that sort of language. Um, that cricket is seen as a way in which you achieve uh, sort of political goals in ways that cannot be achieved through war or whatever. Um, and cricket is seen as the expression, cricket has come to express a shrill hypernationalism. But here was a period and a time when you had an Indian cricket team that sought to express obviously the idea of India, but an idea of India very different from what we have today, uh, and an idea of India which is actually seeking to reinforce ties with the empire, right, which, okay, sure. which, which emphasizes the uh, place of India within the British imperial system. Do you think it succeeded in doing that? I mean, what, what was the, the main legacy, would, would you say, of the tour? It did succeed for a moment. It did succeed in the short term because clearly the fact that an Indian cricket team toured Britain, went around at a time of growing social chasm, uh, at a time of growing political discord between uh, Britons and Indians, clearly sent out a positive message. It, it reinforced uh, the fact that there were elements as far as, and this is, I'm, I'm talking from the viewpoint of the British imperial establishment, it seemed to reassure them that, you know, that they should not entirely give up on the civilizing mission. One of the things that you see in the discourse about the tour, in the popular press, in the writings of uh, British officials at this point in time, report, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the tour, is that they say, see, this shows that the civilizing mission does, after all, succeed. Cricket can be a way in which we can, um, you know, we can reinforce our connections with India. And that, the fact that Indians are taking up to the game uh, and, 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 you know, forging an Indian team that comes out to play against us uh, in this manner, that is an affirmation of the imperial project. Um, but of course, the First World War uh, is a key game changer. What ha happens is that after the First World War, the nature of the relationship, political relationship between India and Britain is completely uh, turned upside down. Where earlier Congress nationalists could conceive of uh, being patriots while at the same time affirming loyalty to the empire. Now under Gandhi, who increasingly becomes uh, comes to lead a, a mass anti-colonial movement and who has himself become very disillusioned with the idea, this older idea that India could be part of the British Empire. Because remember, Gandhi at one time had even, you know, uh, undertaken operations on, you know, uh, during the Boer War and when he was in South Africa sure. and elsewhere. He had so he had seen himself as a patriot, but at the same time, uh, you know, had had been able to visualize a place for India within the empire. Now, of course, that is jettisoned. Uh, the old moderate nationalists are pushed aside. There's a more strident, radical uh, nationalism, a mass nationalism, which now increasingly can begin to see an India that is outside of the British Empire. That was Prashant Kadambi. Prashant's book... Cricket Country, an Indian Odyssey in the Age of Empire, is out on the 25th of July, published by Oxford University Press. For more on global history, check out our bi-monthly sister publication, BBC World Histories magazine. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? 
You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.